You're listening to Radio MD. She's a chiropractic physician, lecturer, author, entrepreneur, and talk show host. She's Dr. Suzanne Bennett. It's time now for Wellness for Life Radio. Here's Dr. Suzanne. Pure water, unadulterated clean water is my favorite liquid of choice. It's for energy to clear my head and even calm my gut down when I'm a bit nervous. Now, 60% of the human body weight is made up of water, H2O. Your body uses water in all your cells, organs, and tissues to help regulate its temperature, remove waste, and maintain other bodily functions. Now, the amount of water you need depends on a variety of factors, including where you live. If you're in high altitude, you're by the beach or in the desert, how physically active you are, whether you're experiencing some form of illness, other health issues. Now, this is the basic science of water, but there's so much more to it. So we have a very special guest on Wellness for Life today, and he is here to share his new perspective of water and its relations to disease, specifically cancer. Dr. Thomas Cowan, MD, has studied and written many, many subjects in medicine, including nutrition and homeopathy, anthroposophical medicine, and herbal medicine. He's the author of the best-selling book, Cancer and the New Biology of Water, which is here to, here to talk about, and four other amazing books. I know I've had him here on a show uh, talking about his, his um, other recent book, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. Now, Dr. Count has served as vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophical Medicine and is the founding board member of the Weston A. Price Foundation. Welcome back to Wellness for Life, Dr. Cowan. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. You bet. You bet. You know, before diving into the details of your amazing book, because I've been reading on it and, and taking so much notes, I would love to ask you, what inspired you to write about cancer, the new biology of, of, of water? This is the, your book's title. Um, basically, it was because of what I see as this sort of, uh, uh, as I described, the failure of the current model. And I thought it would help people out if I presented a different model for what's going on and why the current model has failed. When you say current model, what do you mean by that? So in, in 1971, uh, they announced the war on cancer, they being mostly Nixon. And they said that they would spend whatever it takes, and in 10 years, the cancer would be gone and we wouldn't have any more problem with it. And Interestingly, about then, around one out of four, one out of five people got cancer. And here we are 40 years later, and now about one out of two people get cancer in their lifetime. And more people die dramatically more than they did in 1971. And there was a study done by the Australian government in 2004, and they claimed that chemotherapy, which is the main tool that came out of this war on cancer uh, has about a 2.3% improvement rate in the overall prognosis and survival of cancer patients. And the reason for that was because at the time they decided that they understood the scientists, basically the cancer researchers, that they understood why we have cancer and they called it oncogenes, which means there are mutations in the DNA, in the nucleus, that caused cancer. And so pretty much the entire edifice of cancer research has been in, devoted to the study and attempting to do something about these oncogenes. And my thesis 
and I'm obviously not the only one, is that oncogenes are not the cause of cancer. They're only an effect of something else, which is actually pretty easily proven. Right, right. And, and now the buzzword about cancer is really about the epigenetics, what happens around our genes and how it's expressed due to our environment, our, our stressors of life and, and um, the chemicals, everything that we're exposed to. Isn't that correct? Uh, uh, that's what a lot of people say. That, that, however, is not what I would say, because to me, that's too cliche-ish and actually still putting too much emphasis on the genes. And what I mean by that is there were some very interesting studies on this, and they're all referenced in my book, which I think are the most important thing for people to realize, which is the cell is essentially made of two parts. It has a a membrane-bound cytoplasm, which is the sort of watery part, and then it has another membrane-bound nucleus where the genes are. So the two parts are the nucleus and the cytoplasm. And so you can do a very simple experiment where you take uh, a normal cell and a cancer cell. And by the way, the oncogenes, the, the, the part where the uh, DNA is, which is if you talk about epigenetics, the part that's, you know, that's all about the genes, the genes are in the nucleus. So if you take the nucleus out of a cancer cell, and put it into a healthy cytoplasm, interestingly, the progeny are healthy. And if you do the opposite, if you put a healthy nucleus into a cancerous cytoplasm, the, pro- the progeny are cancer. And what that tells you is that the site of the problem, the location of the problem with cancer, is actually not in the nucleus. And if it's not in the nucleus, it can't be in the genes. The problem is in the cytoplasm. And the analogy, because I like to write and talk in analogies here so people can really picture this, it's a bit like somebody, you know, you come upon somebody who's looking under the streetlight and you ask him what he's looking for. And he says, I'm looking for my keys. And you ask, well, where'd you lose them? And he says, over there in the bushes. And you say, why are you looking under the streetlight? And he says, because the light's better. And essentially, we spent trillions of dollars looking in the nucleus and even talking about epigenetics, which is why I don't like that word, uh, because it, it, me, it connotes that the problem is still something in the genes. We've been looking trillions of dollars, 50 years, for what's happening in the genes, but the t- problem is that the answer is in the cytoplasm, and mm. nobody looked there. Thank you for clarifying that. And in the cytoplasm, that's where, where you talk about the misconception of, of basically um, the, what it's made of, water. Um, and in fact, that, you know, I think the first time I've ever heard about the fourth phase of water, about the gel form, was through Gerald Pollack, his book. Um, right. And you really did go deep dive in there, too. In your book, uh, you clarified that misconception that water has more than four, three phases, liquid, ice, and steam, that there is a fourth phase called gel water or structured water. What is structured water and why is it so important for our well-being and uh, disease? So you're correct. So, so most, 
mostly we're taught somewhere in elementary school that matter exists in three phases, solid, liquid, and gas. So with copper, there's uh, solid copper, there's molten or liquid copper, and there's gaseous copper, and there's no transitions. It goes from one to the next. And that's true for every other substance you know, on Earth that we know of except water. Water has ice, water, and steam, but it also has a fourth phase, which is between water and ice, which is where the water forms itself into very specific bond angles and creates a gel. Everybody has seen this and know, knows about this because we've heard of jello and probably even eaten jello. Jello is a classic fourth phase or structured water substance. So we all know it exists, except, I guess, the scientists. And it turns out that um, all the water in the cytoplasm is in this fourth phase. Now, this is not something that I made up. In fact, if you, if you go to an MRI machine, which is one of the ways that doctors, oncologists diagnose cancer, uh, and what an MRI machine is measuring is something called the relaxation phase of, of water in the cytoplasm. So in other words, when the water in the cytoplasm is in this perfect crystalline gel, then that creates basically health of the cell, and I can go into exactly how. Um, when the water either dissolves, in other words, liquefies or hardens into a more distorted shape, the signal is picked up by the MRI, and that is converted into an image, which tells the radiologist and the oncologist that there's something wrong, like a tumor in that area. So if somebody says there's no evidence that structured water has anything to do with cancer, that's, of course, ridiculous because that's the main tool that we use to, to actually diagnose cancer. So, you know, that, that's the first thing. Now, one of the ways why, how, or one of the ways this is so important is if you forget about everything one thinks about cancer and just looks and, and uses your observation, what you notice is that cancers are always denser and harder than the surrounding tissue. In other words, if you take, say, a breast where it's easy to feel, the normal breast will feel soft and flexible, and then you get to the breast cancer, and it feels like a hard rock. And the question is, why does it feel so different? Why does it feel so hard? And the answer is because it's more dense. In other words, the cells are essentially you know, more concentrated. There's more breast cells in, in whatever square inch or square centimeter than in the normal tissue. In other words, the spatial orientation of the cells has changed. And as I described in the book, that is exactly one of the functions that is, happens because of the water in our cytoplasm. If the water is structured, it puts out a, it distributes the sodium potassium across the cell membrane. That creates a negative charge around the cell. Two negative charges around the cell repel each other, and they keep their distance and produce healthy tissue. When the cell loses its charge because the water structure deteriorates, then the cells clump together and we get a tumor.
So um, just to be to describe this, it's like if you've got a balloon that is nice and full, a small round balloon, and it's nice and full uh, with liquid inside. What you're saying is that depending on the um, type of water you've got inside, if you lose that gel property, uh, structured water, and you lose the potassium, which is more, potassium is more higher in inside the cell, and you lose potassium um, and that uh, potential of electrical current within the cell, then it can lose its uh, turbidity and it will misshapen and flatten out more, in a sense. If you, let's say, take some of the water out, you end up having a much more um, a lax type of balloon. And that's what you're saying that cancer can become, and that's how you can have more impact, impacted, I guess, impacted cells one after another, and that's one of the, um, one of the, uh, I guess, uh, the basics of what cancer is. Yes, that's pretty, that's close. I mean, that's very good. That the real issue here, it's a, it's sort of a balloon, but, it, but it, the the real issue is. So all cells have a charge around them, as a, let's say a negative charge. So when two negatively charged cells come together, they repel each other, keep their distance, and form healthy tissue. That, that, the, the creation of that charge around the cell has been of interest to cell biologists and doctors for literally centuries. They tried to figure out where that charge came from. And over the centuries and decades of research, they figured it out. It came because of the distribution of sodium and potassium inside and outside the cell, which then became, was, was another of the central mysteries of biology, which is how do cells live in a salt-rich environment, a sodium-rich environment, yet they're high in potassium and low in sodium on the inside and high in sodium and low in potassium on the outside. And that distribution creates the charge. So the question is, how does that sodium-potassium distribution come about? And it was one of the crowning achievements in medicine. And, you know, Nobel Prizes have been given for the discovery in 57, approximately, of a sodium-potassium pump in the membrane, which pumps the sodium out and the potassium in. So that's considered one of the foundations of cell biology. The problem is it's incorrect. In other words, there is a sodium-potassium pump, but it's basically irrelevant. And the reason I know that is because a brilliant biologist named Gilbert Ling actually did studies on how much energy it would take for this pump to pump out the sodium and pump in the potassium. And he figured out it was about 30 times the amount of energy that the cell had to do everything. So it's like a person with a $2,000 a month job having a $30,000 a month mortgage. The math just doesn't work. So the question then is if, it, if this charge that's essentially the, the, the life of the cell is because it's charged. Where does it come from if not from a pump? The answer is by some miracle of nature, and one has to really almost be in awe of, of what I'm about to say, is 
the the structure of the water in this fourth phase is so uh, situated, is so organized that by itself it attaches to potassium and excludes sodium with no energy needed. And one, you can't uh, hardly appreciate what a miracle that is. That's why there's life, because the structured water, the gel in the cell, has a mesh size that attaches to potassium, gets rid of sodium, creates a charge in and around the cell, which is the energy of life. It allows the cells to keep their distance. And when the cell charge is lost, the cells clump together, become dysfunctional and sick, and that's what we call disease. Mm, mm. You talk you about this. You can see this, this in, in even in a joint. You know, why is a mm. joint healthy? Because it has a structured water sac around it, and when two structured water sacs called bursas meet, because they're always negatively charged, they repel each other, and then you have smooth movement of the joint. Over time, if the structured water deteriorates, then there's no cushion and there's no charge. The bones, uh, you know, then you have so-called bone on bone, which is what we call arthritis. You, you can see this everywhere. When you lose the charge, you're basically on the road to death. So, um, you know, what I'm hearing is that we definitely need to nourish our cells, not just with water, what we drink, but also potassium, the right amount of potassium. Uh, we know that uh, the RDA says 4,700 milligrams of potassium is necessary. But in this country and the rest of the world, sodium is what we usually use most of. We are way heavily uh, sodium-based with our food. We salt everything. Uh, what, what is your recommendation to improve our intracellular gel? Um, number one, eating higher levels of potassium, uh, rich foods. That's that I would say that's probably coming, you know, just, just from talking to you about this now, that's, I think one of the things that we can do easily. Isn't that correct? Uh, I mean, not so much. There's a certain truth in that, but you know, for instance, when I was writing this book, um, and so it, it's basically, the, to rephrase your question, it's how do you create this healthy, perfect gel that can create a charge and, you know, essentially energize your life? And a lot of people have tried to give that same answer as, as you do, some pretty successfully, the most important of which was Gerson, who came up with the thing called the Gerson diet which is where coffee enemas and carrot juice and juicing came from. And he, he said the problem with cancer is because the cells have lost their potassium and have too much sodium. So his whole diet principle was on increasing potassium-rich foods and decreasing sodium and giving coffee enemas to get rid of the waste products. And he gave all kinds of potassium supplements because his whole thing, he didn't know anything about this water business, but he knew that it was a sodium-potassium problem. And he was very successful. He cured a lot of people of cancer, and it's, even to this day, some of the people with cancer get cured by the Gerson diet, although there's also a lot of failures. Because the problem is it's not, you can flood yourself with potassium and get rid of all the sodium you want, but that's not really 
the, the, it's, it's by no means the only factor that determines the health of the crystalline gel in your cells. I mean, that's a, essentially, if, you're, if your celly, cytoplasm gel phase is normal, that will take care of the p- sodium-potassium distribution unless you have a really horrible diet. So I would focus, and I did focus, not so much on the sodium-potassium levels in the food, although that's relevant for sure, but how do you create these healthy gels in the cell? Because I think that's the unifying principle of why all these different cancer approaches either worked or didn't work. Got it. Great. So what are other ways that we can maintain the intracellular gel? So in, in order to answer that question, you, it, it, you have to go back to basics. So how do we form this gel in the first place? And interestingly, it's very similar to how we make jello. You take, in order to make jello, you start with gelatin proteins, and then you add water, and then nothing happens. So then you heat up the solution of proteins, gelatin, and water, and then you cool it and it forms a gel. So what happened when you heated it is that you took these proteins that were uh, essentially bound up, that uh, were, you you know, not extended and therefore not available to interact with water, and you made them, essentially unrolled them, so that uh, unfolded them so that they could interact with water. So the role of heat in that is to un- is to unfold the proteins, allow the proteins, which are hydrophilic surfaces, to interact with water, and then when that's cooled, it forms a gel. So that's the same thing that happens in our cytoplasm. So we have these proteins, mostly actin, there's a few others. They form an intracytoplasmic network, like Jello, and they interact with water and hopefully the purest water you can have. Now the question then is, what is the role of heat? Uh, what plays the role of heat in the cell? Because we don't have little Bunsen burners in our cells. That wouldn't work. So it turns out it's a very interesting answer and one that's hugely misunderstood, not only by conventional medicine, but by uh, you know alternative types is it turns out that this molecule called ATP, which is people say is the energy molecule, has nothing to do with energy at all, even though that is one of the most heretical statements that anybody can make about science. But what ATP does, it attaches to the ends of these proteins and unfolds them so that they can interact with water like the heat does, and form gels. So it is true that if you have an ATP deficiency, you're not going to be able to structure your water and you're going to have low energy because the energy of your body comes from from the charge generated by the water. So it looks like ATP is creating energy, but it isn't. It's just unfolding the protein so that the water can generate the energy. Now, therefore, anything that interferes with your body's ability to make ATP, which happens in the mitochondria in our cytoplasm, anything that happens uh, there will 
lessen your ability to make these gels, and therefore you won't have enough energy. And if you don't have enough energy, everything goes poorly. And like I say, you can't make the charge, and then your cells clump together and eventually get cancer. So anything that affects mitochondrial function will affect the generation of ATP. Now, there's a lot of things that do that, like uh, toxins do that. Uh, Probably the predominant one is non-native electromagnetic fields. They basically poison your mitochondria and keep it from being able to make ATP, and then you can't make gels. So cell phones and cell towers and tablets and all that stuff. Uh, another one is as the deuterium levels, which is an isotope of, of hydrogen, accumulate, the deuterium essentially poisons something called ATP synthetase, which is an enzyme that makes ATP. You can't make ATP. You can't structure your water. You can't generate a charge. Cells clump together. You lose uh, function. You lose energy. So there's a whole lot of things that can play into this process. And, you know, part of the book was about writing about uh, what what factors influence it and what you can do about it. Mm, right. You, you have a whole chapter on deuterium-depleted water. And, right. um, and now you can start to find uh, companies that make deuterium-depleted water. It is super expensive. There's no doubt about that. But yeah. also there, there's a diet that you can shift a little bit. Um, there's a diet, like a de- low deuterium depleted water diet. Isn't that, is that something that uh, also you recommend? So when you look at that, you know, the, the physiology of it is deuterium substitutes for hydrogen. It's an isotope of hydrogen. Uh, and so certain molecules can incorporate deuterium into their structure and others can't because deuterium, when it, when it substitutes for hydrogen, it changes it. So, for instance, fats are not able to incorporate deuterium into their structure. So fats are, generally speaking, always uh, low in deuterium, whereas glucose, carbohydrates, tend to be higher in deuterium. So if you're generating your energy, essentially, from food from fats, you'll end up with lower deuterium levels. And if you generate your energy from carbohydrates, you'll generate higher deuterium levels. And, you know, this is such an interesting subject because there have been people, you know, this started in, uh, with, the, with Russians who are investigating these people in Siberia because deuterium-depleted water freezes at four degrees instead of zero degrees. So people who drank glacial runoff water, it's always low in deuterium. It's about 130 parts per million instead of 150. So there was these groups of people who spent their lives drinking low deuterium water, and they were studied for decades by the Russians. They found out that they had 40 times the number of centenarians, people who lived till they were 100, as the rest of the Russian population. No cancer, no heart disease, no diabetes, etc. And they figured out over these decades that the main factor was they were low in deuterium and that allowed them to generate energy more efficiently than the normal people. So this has been reproduced by giving people essentially 
low deuterium water and, as you said, low deuterium diets to sort of mimic this. And I don't know if we can generate 40 times the centenarians. I mean, some of these people lived 120, 130 years. Uh, but that's, it's, it's some very interesting studies published on, you know, people with prostate cancer live twice as long who do deuterium depletion. People with breast cancer live twice as long if they do deuterium depletion. So it's a remarkable intervention. It's not cheap, as you say, just because the technology of getting deuterium out of water is not easy. But it's a very profound intervention, which I wrote about in the book. Right. You've written so many fascinating uh, technologies. Uh, People have got to read this book, uh, Cancer, the New Biology of Water. Before we say goodbye, uh, gosh, I can talk to you forever here, Dr. Cowan. I do want to tell you how impressed I am with your organic gardening, uh, that you grow 80% of the plants you consume uh, that's just incredible. I'm, I love hearing that. And then you also have a um, website that uh, I guess you, I believe you make products out of your garden. Can you just talk a little bit about that before you go? And the, the, the uh, website is called drcowansgarden.com. Yeah, we, you know, I, I've been an avid gardener, organic gardener for decades. I taught gardening in the Peace Corps back a few uh, lifetimes ago, and we got access to a very big garden in Napa, and so we started growing stuff, and we made it into vegetable powders to help people diversify their diet. We tried to grow unusual things because I've believed for years that it's not just eating a whole bunch of kale, but it's eating, you know, traditional people ate 100 different vegetables a year, and modern people eat 12, and ketchup is one, and iceberg lettuce is two. So, <laughs> you know, so we started by growing vegetables, de- dehydrating them, and then we got too big, so we started contracting with biodynamic farms and moved the operation to upstate New York. And, and so we're basically getting biodynamically grown produce, turning it into vegetable powders, some, some of, of it's wild and very unusual things and vegetables and plants with high medicinal value. And it's been a lot of fun and we're doing well. And I would encourage everybody to check us out at drcowansgarden.com. Thank you. Absolutely. Really wonderful stuff. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Dr. Cowan. The website also that to learn more about his book is Four full, four fold healing. Four, and that's F O U R F O L D healing.com. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Gosh, such great information. And, and thank you for listening for, to the show. I know you've learned a great deal of valuable information. So do share this show with your loved ones. I know it can change their life for the better. And please subscribe if you haven't already so you can continue to do the best here on Wellness for Life. If you need help in digging deeper with your health issues, I work with people globally through phone and Skype consultations. My contact info is available on my website, drsuzanne.com. Until next time, go out there and live your best life full of energy, enthusiasm, and ultimate health and wellness. This is Dr. Suzanne sharing natural strategies on the Wellness for Life show right here on Radio MD. Stay well.